What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is with Aaron Ginn. Aaron is the CEO and co-founder of Hydra Host. Hydra provides a simple API-driven platform to monetize available GPUs or high-grade CPUs that includes everything a company may need. He also is the founder of the Lincoln Network, now known as the Foundation for American Innovation, which connects the tech industry with policymakers to make decisions for a prosperous future. In this conversation, Aaron and I talk about everything from the state of venture capital to advanced computing, geopolitical conflict, politics, and many of the contrarian ideas that he has had over the last decade or so in Silicon Valley that had many people questioning, was he right or was he crazy? This conversation is full of ideas that will make you think much more deeply and also question, where's America going? What can we do to improve that direction? And what is your individual role in America's continued rise and dominance on the global stage? Here is my conversation with Aaron Ginn. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is brought to you by Aradine. They're a brand new startup led by a number of Silicon Valley legends who just raised $81 million to build the future of internet infrastructure. You're probably wondering what that means, so let me explain. There are numerous new disruptive technologies that are being adopted simultaneously, from blockchain to artificial intelligence to zero-knowledge technologies. In order to ensure that these technologies thrive in this new world, we need new infrastructure, and that is where Aradine comes in. They just launched their first product line called Terraflux, which is a Bitcoin miner powered by the world's first four nanometer silicon chip technology. These air-cooled, single-phase and dual-phase immersion cooling miners have unrivaled speed and efficiency. They have superior uptime, and they leverage a brand new innovation called Energy Tune that allows miners to dynamically adjust the energy consumption and Bitcoin hash rate based on demand response needs of the electrical grids. Aradine is an ambitious company working on hard problems. I'm really impressed with them. And if you want to check out more, you can go to Aradine.com. That's A-U-R-A-D-I-N-E.com. Go check them out at Aradine.com today. This episode is brought to you by Cal.com. What do I have in common with Chad Hurley from YouTube, Toby from Shopify, and Alexis from 776 and the co-founder of Reddit? We all use Cal.com instead of Calendly, and we are all early investors as well. Cal.com is leading the charge of scheduling platforms in the open source sphere, offering you the chance to harness the efficiency previously reserved for elite corporations and tech gurus. If you like to have your calendar organized and be able to have an efficient exchange when scheduling, but you love all of the benefits of open source technology, then Cal.com is for you. They are transforming sophisticated calendar management into an accessible tool for all via a user-friendly interface. You can customize it and you can make your calendar work for you. Use code POMP for $500 off when you set up your team with Cal.com today. 
Again, go to cal.com, C-A-L.com, and use code POMP to get $500 off when you sign up. Cal.com, an open source tool that allows you to take back control of your calendar, be efficient when scheduling, and make sure that no one can steal your time. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got a great treat for you today. Aaron is here. Uh, Aaron, let's just jump right into it. You've been in Silicon Valley for uh, quite a while, and you've held a number of views that maybe weren't so popular and now have become much more popular. I think maybe the first place to just start is like, how do you continue to think critically and independently when everybody around you was yelling and screaming the exact opposite of the views that you held? Uh, I mean, yeah, I've been canceled three times in my life so far. Uh, so... First time was because I hosted a Liberty Hackathon and, uh, and uh, Senator Rand Paul also came, I think like a day or two before and the San Francisco Chronicle called me a racist. Uh, by the way, my family fled, uh, communism from China and my co-founder is black. So they didn't really like to look us up then. And then I got canceled again, uh, for uh, voting for Trump. Uh, so I was the only conservative exec in my tech company. Uh, I also went to the, Repo- I went to three Republican debates. So I became a soft target there. And then I got canceled again for my views on COVID, uh, like big time canceled, like major. <laughs> so uh, it's just, you know, my, my dad, uh, who is, you know, the most kind of Chinese American person you could ever think of, uh, once told me that, uh, you know, people aren't going to like you for, uh, for how you look or, or what you think and basically said F them, right? So he told me that when I was like eight. And that has been like kind of uh, instilled in me for since then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I was one of the first quote unquote uncloseted Republicans in Silicon Valley back in 2013. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I've been since then it's just been kind of second nature to me. Like the, the fact that like, in my mind, as probably as your mind too, it's kind of bizarre to me that you would like disassociate with something because they like generally think of something within quite the mainstream and let's say mainstream is above like 10% of the population. Uh, and that's just really foreign to me. And I don't do that to those people, but they do it to me. And that's just never been co- completely clear to me, but they just sort of do it. And, uh, and Silicon Valley, especially when, when I went there, you know, it was like a uh, harder idea, hard on ideas, easy on people, right? Things like that. And, and then it kind of has molded definitely underneath Obama. The, it molded into a, like a calcentrate ideology of like pure, puritanical wokeism, right? And then it just sort of accelerated as like trope, Trump broke, broke people's brains, right? Um, but I kind of stayed where I was, which was kind of like the same, uh, kind of like libertarian esque uh, kind of anti neoliberalism, uh, orientation. Uh, but yeah, was, yeah, I think Silicon Valley has gone through this like breaking point though, because, uh, it was easy to punch at Trump, but then post COVID post like the Trump administration, uh, I think it has created a massive fissure in Silicon Valley, which I think is good because you see ideologues. And the, the Hamas thing with the, the renewed war is also another one. Like you, you see a break in Silicon Valley, right? Where you see very, uh, I would say rational, a group of rational people who don't agree on like, if you ask them all about abortion, it kind of varies, right? But they kind of are on the zone of like, we believe in like freedom, freedom of expression, rational argument. And then you got the other side that basically takes the puritanical wokeism side that it doesn't matter what you say to them. They're right. They're narcissists. They're going to win, right? Uh, and, and that's kind of like where, uh, the actual war has actually been, but it's kind of been mismatched between red and blue when in reality, like that's always been the divide, uh, in, in, in tech. 
So you now are taking what I'll consider a, a mental framework or a worldview that uh, was unpopular, now becoming more popular, uh, and you are quote unquote productizing it in terms of a company today. Before we get to what you guys are building with Hydra, I want to just talk mm. about the computing wars, advanced computer chips, et cetera. Yeah. What is kind of that industry look like today? And where do you see problems that potentially could be coming up that you want to go ahead and get ahead of and start addressing now? Uh, well, I think that like for... What, what Americans don't realize is that it, there's, a, there's great biographies written by about Mao that I think if most Americans read, they would be very shocked at like how uh, stereotypic or should say suspicious and and the way in which working with China is not like working with any other good faith actor in the West. That like what they say, what they do is very very different, and they're very crafty and they're shrewd. I uh, as an example like. Uh, most of the advanced weaponry that like China has stolen, uh, they didn't invent it, they stole it, uh, were basically different ways of wedging the US and Russia against each other. And they create these like fake uh, media things, right? The, the, one of the greatest examples is when Eisenhower uh, basically threatened to use the nuke over Taiwan. That was a whole setup by Mao to convince uh, the United States to issue that threat. And what Mao did after that was go to the Soviet Union and because Stalin thought Mao was crazy. Like, he was like, oh, this guy's a freaking crazy. I mean, that's literally coming from a mass murderer, right? So that tells you how crazy he was. Like, you know, Stalin literally had a list of people he would just go through every night in terms of who would get executed, right? So, and, and he went to Stalin and he goes, hey, man, like, you don't want to send Russian blood to defend China. Give me nukes. And he goes, no, you're crazy. And they came back again and he goes, okay, I'll send you Russian scientists, right? That's how they got nukes. That's how they got subs. That's how they got jets. Right. That's how they got any sort of aircraft designs. Right. Is in the same thing that applied to the, the economy. Like if you look at most of the, uh, the, the high speed trains there, they look a lot like the German designs. Right. Because they had German engineers there. Right. So, so this, this is a, a, it's a very different type of warfare that I think Americans are sort of used to like a Russian style of like, let's just send tanks in. Right. They imagine that like that's what conflict looks like versus like conflict that comes to China is, is asymmetric and, and very shrewd. Uh, and so when the COVID stuff came out, that was the lens of what I was looking at this stuff. Cause I mean, I, I knew loosely about coronaviruses because I started researching it back, like when the first reports were coming out. And I was like, okay, like this is not SARS 2.0, like this is a bit exaggerated. And they started sending those videos of like people falling in the streets. And I was like, no coronavirus does that. Like, like that, that's like not a thing, right? And even SARS didn't do that, right? And 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 then the the, the storm just kept brewing and brewing, right? And and it was like this this uh, this echo chamber effect that created so much social pressure on the West to respond that like you know basically the the, the safety bias, right? That like well we could be wrong, so but it doesn't matter. We're going to bias first for safety. Versus what I saw was like a propaganda campaign, right? That that that, that and I think that they did not know it was going to be that successful because I think at first China it was real, like you know like. SARS-CoV-2 is real, um, but it manifested itself into something they couldn't even control anymore because it just took off so successfully that it, you notice actually once it starts taking off successfully in response to the Italy, Italian outbreak, an outbreak is like a is a loose word because it was already been there for like four or five months. Uh, the, all of a sudden, the news from China stops, like their data stops, or reporting stops, right? And this is af after the the post Wuhan, uh, you know, the, the building the hospitals and all this like hysteria that China was pushing out to the world. Uh, because at that moment, they knew, oh, wait, we were actually killing people. Like, China was killing people with its hysterical response, 
with how it was building and promoting hospitals, how it was like treating patients, that it was creating hysteria, right? It was actually causing people to panic and then seeking treatment they didn't need, which is having all these sort of secondary effects, right? And then so the data stops and they just sort of let it ride, right? Because that's actually how China works. So when it comes to the like computing, right, which is obviously relates to GPUs and NVIDIA, we need to understand that like they're not just seeking to do AI because it's cool and it like helps me write a like an academic paper, right? They're seeking AI for alternative ends, mostly to control their own population, but but secondarily to build sort of adversarial like uh, AI to like try to take down the stock exchange or electricity or state governments or things like that, uh, and trying to mostly create like phishing schemes, like kind of like make that better. Um, uh, but mostly they're trying to do it to control eternally, uh, internally their population, uh, which they don't have great control over. Um, and, uh, and so, but they are going to externalize it. Uh, so our country, I don't think actually, uh, you know, one of the great things that uh, the Trump administration, um, that is an objective, like both parties would agree is that he changed our view on China. Like if you go back, look at 2015 debates, nobody in the, on that side, maybe, maybe Rubio would be the only other one. We're saying China's a risk. It's the biggest risk to us. Who cares about Russia? They're basically just want to be a drunk mobster in the world. They have no interest in replacing us as the king. They just want to annoy us. They're like the second cousin lives down the street. That's in kind of a like a kind of crappy house, right? And but he has like a really nice car and really, really nice watches, right? That's Russia. He has no interest in running the neighborhood or running the HOA. No interest, right? He just kind of wants to bother people and get paid off with like nice things. So China, though, is like, you know, it wants to run the HOA, right? They want to run the neighborhood, right? And Trump saw that. And like, whether he did or advisor, I don't really care. But he changed the orientation of our country to see that as the highest risk. And that's actually a bipartisan issue now. So the Biden administration uh, issuing these regs, which are very, very restrictive right now on GPUs, uh, they see that and they're, and they're basically getting ahead of the game, which I think is uh, uh, like commendable. Um, with, with, but there's another side, if you look at the other regs they released, where they, they basically treat AI as if it's like Skynet and that it's like intel, actual intelligence versus just basically a different way of doing statistical modeling for machine learning. And, uh, and they're treating it as if it is like a risk to its own people versus a risk of like an adversary using our, uh, chips, like we say, planting stuff in the chip, making it to spy on us, which is kind of the biggest risk. Uh, and then secondarily down the risk would be like them actually creating additional like, uh, uh, artificial LLMs that can do fishing better is like way, way down the list. Uh, even farther down the list is actually creating an adversarial agent to like, let's say attack the stock exchange, right? Like that's possible, but like almost, almost like the required computing power to do that would be like a red, red hot, you know, dot on the map. You just launch a missile at that data center and blow it up or something. So like, like the, the, the amount of computing power you need to, to do that would be insane. Um, so the, uh, so like, I think that the, that some of the recent regs though, that the, the EOs and stuff like that is coming out with the administration views AI as if it was written by someone who saw Terminator too many times with matrix. Uh, and, and it's, it's kind of embarrassing. And they, they also started adding, you know, if you read the regs, like it needs to include diversity inclusion, it needs to like who makes the models and then it has like weights against like biasing against like white angleism things like that which i don't even understand how you would even measure that like how do you measure like like angleism in a model like 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 it doesn't even make any sense right so so even chamath who's like obviously the resident democrat on 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 i guess you can ask jason too but 
he's like, this is crazy. This is just stupid. It's literally like a Yale grad who's 27 who read a book about AI, just threw every other prior, you know, into the EO and then, and then just spit it out there. Right. Uh, so I don't think it really goes anywhere, but cause it's so crazy. And, and even Amazon and Microsoft are like, who cares? Uh, so like, if they're not going to report who's using the models, then, 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 then nobody is right. So. Now, when you start to look at uh, the AI, um, maybe the the regulatory uh, scrutiny that it's receiving, it seems like that is very U.S. focused. Is this happening in other areas as well? Like are other geographies or other governments being this onerous or kind of abrasive to this technology? Or are they actually doing the opposite? My expectation without knowing too much about kind of these other geographies mm-hmm. and specifically around AI is that they're probably actually like leaning into it and trying to promote it and say like, hey, mm-hmm. there's a fucking global race going on. Let's be the winner. Yeah, yeah, definitely China's promoting it, but obviously they have they have uh, malicious uh, malintent. So, uh, like other countries are viewing this as like, oh, this is interesting. Like, let's say European countries, the mo- our strongest allies. This is interesting, but we don't really understand it, and we have other issues to deal with, which is like, you know, our society could implode at any moment. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like Europe is a big harmonious like country right now or continent right now, right? So, I think that's more of where it's just interesting. Um, there, the the regulations around like hardware is where a lot of these countries are focusing, which I actually think is legitimate. That like China has a track record of putting crap into things we buy to spy on us and to take IP. Like they have a history of that. That's fine. The EU is really leaning on the US to lead that way because obviously we control. Swift, so in treasuries, and so that is like the biggest uh, force. And I, by the way, like those rules are also applying to allies like Saudi Arabia. So, like you know, they're they're it's a I think there's like twenty ish countries it's actually applying to, uh, not just China, but obviously China is like the main target, and you know, includes other countries like Iran, right? And which is you know uh, that's good. So uh, the, the the downside I think though is that China I think is taking it much more seriously about like how this actually could be applicable. And, and much more functional in terms of its society, society that I think the U.S. And it's like you could take it's like one step forward, two steps, two steps back. It's like their posture towards hardware is correct. Their, their, their actual understanding of AI and how it has implications to broader society is wrong. Like they, they, you know, the belief around like we need unions now and like, and, you know, like, you know, uh, going back to all in, right. You know, the calcanaxism saying we need like a writer's union for like content, like, and it's just, I don't even know what to do with that. Like, it's, it's, it's so five years away that they, and also like an over extrapolation of actually what these LLMs can do. They're great and they're going to be quite useful. Um, but we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves to the, I, I prefer like trying to correct, correct something on the back end side than trying to predict it. And the US is being a much more predictive mode, uh, on like how it's going to be bad and how it's going to be good. And you, Europe is sort of kind of like neutral. Uh, and then China is like, no, this is going to be good for our society. Um, and, and so I think Americans need to understand that like LMs are, are great and they're, they're, they're going to be, uh, revolutionary in many categories, typically categories that require search and discovery. Um, but we don't need to, uh, most of the innovation around LLMs are basically the UX experience. So, uh, and, and how actually data and content gets like created and how you actually do that. Then there's like, that's kind of the main innovation. The secondary innovation are things related to creative power. So graphics, photos, images, things that would previously require a designer. All that stuff is also quite uh, impressive. Um, but it doesn't mean that like that's going to replace artists. Like, you know, a Picasso is still a Picasso, right? So like it, it's a people are getting way ahead of themselves in terms of thinking that this is actually going to accurately replicate 
the creative power of humanity. It can accurately, uh, I'd say, replicate you hiring someone from Fiverr to write you a blog post. It can do that, right? But telling me that's going to be Hemingway, right? Is is come on, like be serious right now, right? The they there there is a great thing, and like it's basically like, I always view innovation. You know, I'm not part of the uh, was it the E dash ACC whatever. I'm not really there, but I'm kind of somewhere between because uh, I think I think technology has morality needs to be associated, but we don't need to stop. So I always view like innovation steps as replacing something that was already low valued in the system and allows humans to be more human. So it, it's like we live in a Star Wars world, not a Star Trek world. So AI is enabling other sentient creatures and c- creatures that have morality and free will to do more human things, to be greater artists, to be greater, you know, things that are uniquely human, right? Uh, creativity power, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So AI is going to be more useful to people to be more creative and to do greater things versus the Star Trek orientation, which I think is where the Biden administration is and where like a lot of people who are AI researchers, but then you talk to them actually about how they understand intelligence and they really literally think that humans are just a computer and like, okay, this is just a reflection of your priors, not actually true based on the ontological framework that we exist in the world. So Star Trek, I do not believe has actually ever been proven. I, I, like if you look at the history of innovation, Malthusian, uh, like Malthus was wrong. Like it, it just never happened. So the idea that, that AI can come along and replace things and become its own sentience to where it creates value, right? Um, there's so many things locked up into that, like presuppositions around like what that means. Uh, to, to give people kind of a step back and maybe calm their nerves. Remember self-driving? That all oh, self-driving replaced truck drivers, which is one of the highest paid careers right now. Replace oh, taxi cabs, oh, this, right? None of that happened, right? Because I know, and I was actually on record saying in back in 2014 or something like that, saying that that's not going to happen, right? Because there are so many assumptions people had about like how roads work and why we designed it around humans that like humans innately through intuition, which you don't understand exactly about like how intuition works, um, that like you can't map into a zeros and one. Like you, 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 like you can look at down, you know, down Market Street. You can look at that and understand what to do, right? Just, just by intuition. But how you tell via intuition to a computer humans designed into something like that. Like there's all these assumptions built into that road that aren't even articulated. Like you can't articulate. It's just through years and years of research and, and iteration that's designed around humans. And to say like a robot is just going to come in and scan stuff and like come to that intuition is just absurd. Like it, it's like, that's not how it's, it's works. It's not zeros and ones that create intelligence and knowledge. Humans create design intelligence. It requires agency, Right. Uh, and, and this is all basic, you know, um, philosophical points that you would know if you said theology or Socrates or the classics. But a lot of people in tech don't know anything about those things. They don't know anything about it. Like they never read John Locke's theory about free will, right? And so they, they come with like really cool things like computing power, LLMs, right? Machine learning and really great innovations. And then they say it's going to replace all this stuff. And I'm always like, no, it's never happened. Like they, it, there's, it's always created more things, more opportunities, more wealth for people. And in any of the stories of replacement, if you go back and look historically, you're like, it's exaggerated. That's not really what happened. Like, if anything, it's like a local, it's like a within one generational like, cap, let's say like automobile to, to horses, right? Or, or sorry, other way around horses to automobiles. Like, if you actually look at the, the job created, right? Um, it, it, 
it was more of a plateau and then decline, but the adoption of the automobile took decades, right, to actually get to that point. And, and the same thing will be with LLMs, same thing with self-driving, is that it, it at first will enable humans to be more human. So, you know, work on highways, it'll work like on like low sort of variability environments, and then it'll go downstream, right? But it has to solve the simplest use case first. And so LLMs, the same thing. Like if it can't, you know, hallucinate, and if it constantly hallucinates, we, which we can't really control either yet, we can try, but it takes time. Uh, like if it can't repeat back a book accurately, you can't tell me that people are going to like, it's going to replace stock traders, right? Because if an LLM goes south, who are you going to blame? Like, like the, 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 the morality, the agency on the other side of like, if something goes wrong, right, is a key part of our society and it's a basis of our justice system. So to say that, you know, a self-driving cars are going to drive down the street and hit somebody and like, we don't know who's responsible. Society's not going to tolerate that. Like it, it, it's, so that's like a, a whole other level of like anthropology that like people in technology don't understand is like society has to have a functional justice framework, um, to, to work through these innovations, which is why like, yes, it's bleeding edge, cutting edge. It's super cool. We can see the future. But as Andreessen says, like, you know, I, constantly people, uh, overestimate in the short term and underestimate the long term. 100% agree. That like that in the long term, LLMs, GPUs, AI are going to transform lots of parts of our society, but it's not going to happen within like you know five years. We're talking about two decades, a decade, or something like that. When we think about AI, I look at it: idea, software, hardware. Right, is kind of like there's mm-hmm. this overarching uh, idea. It feels like today that is where politicians and regulators are focusing all their time and effort. They're like. Oh, these are scary ideas. To your point, kind of Star Trek versus Star Wars, you know, type thing. Um, the mm-hmm. software, it seems like there is a battle between open source versus closed source, and different companies mm-hmm. and different, you know, kind of uh, thought processes. You are more so going after the hardware component, and you're saying, "Hey, these GPUs are going to be pretty damn important." And yeah. there are different strategies here. Can you outline your strategy versus like the other strategies when it comes to the the hardware itself? Yeah, yeah. So, so we we think that you know it, that this will follow a very similar trend to to cell phones and what happened with the chip makers there, uh, which is like you have an initial burst of like for a couple of years, or very very or uh, lots of value creation on chip maker side uh, because people want the chips, they find a use case, and there's a shortage, and then it goes into the next phase, which is infrastructure development. So, like cloud hosting uh, platform companies. And then the last phase actually is consumers, right? So consumer goods. And so, so that is, if you look at that, that's took over the course of 12 years. Different things were created during that time frame, right? And, and so we think the same thing is going to happen with GPUs. Like I think GPUs is basically what quantum, oh, quantum, quantum, right? GPUs is actually the thing that's going to, going to work, right? And it has downsides, which is like GPUs are terrible at any sort of complex workload, right? They're very, very good at parallelization. So, which are very simple jobs. So, if if there's a transition point, which we'll see with these great hoppers that are coming out, which could be absolutely incredible, um, that the combination of both high performance CPU and high performance GPU to be able to comp- uh, combine those could be actually the thing that actually transforms a lot of workloads. Uh, because there are still CPU, like most of the workloads in you know cloud can actually be done by GPUs. Um, and like, you know, video rendering and, and, uh, which are heavy, heavy on, on CPU side, uh, like those are all things that occupy uh, a lot of, uh, horsepower there. Right. So I only see that GPUs are basically, uh, because they're, they are so dense 
uh, they are immensely powerful for what uh, in terms of teraflops uh, for their for their size. Uh, and that Apple obviously released a GPU into their phone. That's where uh, we're going to see sort of the, this next phase of movement, which is a combination. I don't really believe in replacement. I, I think over the course of time, things kind of like commingle or go into hybrid mode. And then it's been splits where you have people who continue on hybrid mode, continue old, mall, um, old mode and continue on, on new mode. So the, the, I always like to use cars or watches as examples for these things. So as an example, as great uh, for everyone knows hybrid. So obviously Prius was the thing that like transformed the market, right? And, and so we still have the continuation of normal cars and we have hybrid and obviously have absolute electric, right? And so that's going to be for a long time going to be the orientation of hardware. CPU is still going to be the dominant form of computing infrastructure, but we're going to have like hybrid and an absolute, you know, sort of GPU. And both of those, 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 um, new markets are going to be most of the growth in infrastructure of the coming 10 years. But it doesn't mean that the, 300 or 400 billion dollar CPU market is not huge and it's growing slowly, right? But the GPU market is just going to like, you know, ramp up and continue to do that because it generally always creates, as you have new inventions, it creates more wealth and more and, and greater growth. Uh, so our, our belief is that from our company is that more GPUs out in the market, the better it's going to be, especially as you go into refurb, clean and pool, uh, uh, refurbishing side, which we've only started seeing the beginning of that GPUs become cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, their lifespan can be five to seven years. Uh, and that that's going to be pushed more CPU usage into, uh, GPUs. And we're going to be more in a hybrid mode for the coming four or five years as people continue to experiment with GPUs, find it's very useful for certain things, very, very useful for certain things. And then not for others and continue to invest in CPU and GPU. Uh, so we, we are building a platform until we make it. It doesn't matter if you want to get a, uh, a card in Texas or a card in Sweden, uh, the same interface, same API, same security keys. Uh, all the frameworks are the same. You can access any data center in the world. So that's our goal is to be the kayak or the Airbnb for GPUs where you can get any GPU at any data center in the world. So we currently manage about $100 million worth of GPU infrastructure right now. Uh, you go on our website, and you can buy everything from an A10 up to an H100. Uh, and we're completely agnostic to any form of hardware. We actually even have alternatives to the NVIDIA. Uh, they do exist. Uh, and they're putting that on their platform from Intel, from AMD. Um, the more GPUs, the better, because people are going to be in experimentation phase for the next five years as they go hybrid, right? As they try these different, you know, ways of incorporating GPUs into, into their stack. Uh, but what we are seeing very clear adoption, very fast and very clear adoption among enterprises. Uh, but you know, we're not going to go you know, bait and switch and cancel all of our CPUs. Like the CPUs are, are still very, very useful. But I think it's going to be more and more like the uh, what the race hopper is leaning into, or the new H one hundred is going to come out uh, end of next year. Where boosting CPU usage within the GPU framework in this hybrid approach is going to be what people ask for as they try to figure out what to do with this new technology. Now, what's interesting to me is let's say geography as um, a kind of one you know uh, lens of this or one aspect. Mm -hmm. So I have seen some people say, "Hey, we're going to build centralized data centers, and we've got this amazing stuff." Um, I know of a company, uh, Northern Data in Europe, that seems to have one of the bigger clusters there, and that seems to be a competitive advantage for them. There are companies here mm -hmm. in the United States that say, "Hey, we have certain capabilities or geogra uh, geographic advantages uh, as well." I then even saw, I think it's called Dell Complex. They want to build like the compute, you know, center and a sovereign nation floating in the sea. Uh, and they've got kind of mm -hmm. a whole plan and, and uh, whether that's possible or not, like they're going to go <clears throat> attempt it. 
what you all are basically mm-hmm. saying is like, well, what if we just actually create a layer on top of all of these people? And then you can just pick mm-hmm. and choose depending on the day, the the job, the specific, you know, regulatory yeah. thing that you're trying to solve for. And so as you uh have gotten, you know, started with this, two questions immediately popped to mind. How many people know where they want to be? They're like specifically, I want, you know, a GPU from Texas or from this European country versus they just want diversification in general. And they just, you know, they want to yeah. try to avoid centralization. So, yeah. So I, I think that what's going to be very interesting with uh, what GPUs uh, will change, it's a secondary effect uh, that hasn't been, I guess, fully appreciated in the market is that because they are so energy dense, okay, expensive to run. Uh, and they're also small, uh, that it's going to re, reimagine how you think of data centers in terms of the world market. So the, uh, I do think you're going to see smaller data centers in more interesting places with attached to renewable energy or attached to some form of like cheap energy source, uh, that that's going to be the break of the market because the, the, the cost of running a GPU compared to CPU, you're looking at, you know, maybe 10 times the magnitude. Uh, and, and that matters more for, real estate purposes, right? Real, like the actual physical uh, components of a data center matter much more than ever before versus CPU, you know, you're talking about single digit points and stuff like that on running a bunch of CPUs. So you can't just run it in Virginia as well as like GPUs are not as sensitive based on how people use it on networking between different countries, right? So versus CPUs, it, that's much more important. So this is why, like, I think it becomes more hybrid is that like their GPUs are just really good right now at very specific things that they can only be very good at. And so we're going to have this fracturing now of like mega data centers that are still going to exist because CPUs need to be in a mega data center and the cost of running it is just, you know, uh, kind of unbeatable. But for these like next wave of computing is going to be much more modular. It's going to be smaller or be like beyond ships or something like that to where they find an advantageous place on the real estate side and also on the energy side. Uh, so that's like that forcing function. And that's actually not changing because the, the, if you look at the arc as teraflops increase per new GPU card, the energy cost to run those is actually linear. So, so they have not been able to break that curve. So as, you know, for, for example, Grace Hoppers, you know, like it, for most data centers, it would literally running one Grace Hopper would explode the data center, right? Like, so, so like that, even that, like the energy is increasing, right? So. You know, like there was one uh, estimate, I think, from Ireland or is it Iceland, like 25, 30% of their energy costs like are actually just data centers, right? So that's only going to get worse uh, as people go shift towards advanced computing. Um, and and so th- when customers are coming to us, mostly they're looking at just, I need to find a car to do something specific. So that's why that's also the first emotion around the distributed compute is that because there's less in it, like actual like ISP needs, so like getting data to the data center as it relates to GPUs, they're much more interested in being distributed because there's not enough cards. And so they're much, much more concerned around pricing, availability of cards, that's pushing it to be distributed. Um, uh, the second is that the, uh, a lot of these companies are going into sovereign LLM hosting because the price of the GPU is so expensive that you're like, well, I can just buy my own hardware and it can pay back itself in a year. Right. So, so the, and then you have the other side, which is like the shortage. Which is like, you know, if you're running, for example, a training session and someone kicks you off, like the training session is done. It's just, like, there's no like pausing it and then restarting it, right? It's like all of that work that was done is just lost, right? So, so there, there is a, a strong uh, desire to shift towards their own infrastructure because of, you know, the shortages and, uh, and the fact that the, the hardware itself is immensely valuable. 
uh, and they just want to run their own hardware because they just want to run a model anytime they want. Um, so, so that it is having a renewed impact uh, on the colo space and uh, and sort of REITs that are part of data centers because there's this huge movement now back to bare metal. Uh, and you have like it, the, obviously King of the Hill is Nvidia, which are is running this prison yard game of, of like trying to get cards and stuff like that, trying to control the supply. But they don't really want to sell to public cloud. Uh, they don't want to be in the same position. Going back to that that same uh, metaphor about the phone market, you know, Intel and et cetera, like IBM were amazing growth, right? And then crash and crater, right? As the next wave of infrastructure companies took over and owned that customer segment, right? So NVIDIA knows that and, and Jensen is very smart. And so obviously he, he went from gaming to AI and like in, and machine learning. And that was an amazing play by him. So he knows that like the next wave is actually disintermediating the value of the chip. And, and, you know, I think every major cloud company, maybe said Microsoft, um, uh, is working on their own GPU card, right? Because they want to be held to NVIDIA. And NVIDIA knows that. So NVIDIA is trying to push as close to the customer as possible. So they're trying to get footprint. They're trying to get to data centers so that they can have an actual place in a physical location so they cannot be disintermediated like you can with public cloud. Uh, and so, yeah, sure, public cloud is still one of the largest buyers. But if you talk to anyone like who works in NVIDIA, like, you know, they're like, we don't, we, they, they, do, uh, they do not want that to be a continued relationship because anyone at NVIDIA wants to have NVIDIA customers, right? They don't want to have Amazon uh, through Amazon type of customers, um, which is which is smart. Like it, it is quite smart. And, and uh, their whole on DGXs is also trying to do that. Their software packages, CUDA, like these are all trying to create that footprint uh, and permanence. And to, uh, to be fair to them, it is still the best. Like there is nothing that really comes close to anything that they produce versus what's on the AMD or, or IBM side. Uh, if you have a very specific, let's say, PyTorch, you know, package or workload, yeah, you could probably get an IBM uh, GPU that can do something very similar. But the the power of the generalized uh, framework that which uh, uh, Nvidia has created is right now unbeatable. Uh, and and so you know, they'll I think they're going to be kings for at least another two or three years. What is your greatest fear when it comes to these kind of like advanced computing wars? There's nation states, there's company competition, there is regulation. Like what's the uh, doomsday scenario in your mind that we have to work diligently to avoid? Uh, I would probably only say the, the negative case where we become so obsessed about the possible negative downsides that we lose the ability to actually continue to lead here. And that would be, I think, the, the, the thing that would be the biggest fear is that we, we become obsessed with what, you know, we saw in uh, Black Mirror and that becomes like our orientation of what this technology is versus the reality, the historical truth, the just nature of humanity is that it ends up being like a net gain. And yeah, there's downsides, but those downsides generally are like already human pathologies, right? Like it's like if you cut off, you know, if we go back and do prohibition again, right? humans will still find other pathologies, right? Because our nature is to find pathologies, is to find addictions, to find medications, to our own internalized drama, our own internalized story. So I, I think that that is the, 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 the biggest concern is that politicians specifically who are immensely uninformed, I mean, you just look at them physically, they, they, they look uninformed, even though they say things that are uninformed. Like, that we become more obsessed with the geriatric narrative of something they read when they were in high school back in the 1950s 
versus like what the future actually is and where we can go as humanity and America can still be the leader. So my biggest fear is if America continues to not want to be a winner, to not want to win and be number one, because Americans don't appreciate that we are a a benevolent imperial power and we are probably the first. Like, tell me any other country in the history of the world, uh, of human, humankind too, just like, you know, forever 9,000 years of recorded history that where we invade a country, we destroy it, utterly eviscerate it. And then we make a democracy and then we let them go. And we've done that like six times, right? Philippines, Japan, Korea, Germany, Taiwan, right? Like we, we do this as, as a, a lifestyle, right? And, and I, and, and I think we, 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 we just kind of like, almost are embarrassed by it or we don't appreciate it, but it's beautiful. It's an, it's an amazing thing that America can be the absolute power and can still give people freedom and, and that we set the terms right uh, on what it, what it means to be free uh, within context. Like, and uh, with, you know, like we still have obviously Germany, still Germany, we're still America, but like we did that. Right. And we should be very proud of that. Uh, but instead we sort of have this, well, we don't want to be number one. And like, we got to let, you know, multiculturalism to like, you know, we're, we're, we're a colonizer. Like, I don't, I don't understand. It's like, do you believe that you live in this country and, you know, most likely your parents immigrated or their parents or their parents, like, how do you not see that this is the best way to live life? If you don't want as a country, you don't want to have that. That is your decision. Right. But to say that our, our style and our lifestyle is bad or not should not be promoted is crazy. Because if China's promoting theirs, uh, and every other country is promoting theirs, but we sort of like, no, we do, we shouldn't, right? The more people that follow, you know, Western Civ, right? And and we generally are that we have, you know, a very strong contingent of Americans that do not believe in Western Civ. But you know, broad the broad umbrella, Western Civ, it objectively works. Like it, it, it it's a like look at Israel. Okay, so so it's the biggest thing of the day, right? So before. Israel existed, right? Uh, before the, whatever, 1919 agreement, before, uh, 1948, 47. That whole area was, was, was like a shanty town, right? It was crap, right? Nobody wanted to live there. It was poor, right? Didn't have running water, electricity. Like, you know, it was, it was, it was like Bedouin life, right? And then they come along and start off actually as a socialist, you know, you know, with the, with the, um, what's it called? The, the kibbutz, you know, the, the, the socialist, uh, frameworks there. Then they actually became more free. It's one of the few countries in America, in the run America, sorry, in world history that goes from socialist communist orientation to become more free. And it's a paradise now, right? It is, it is, it is a first world country that has Arabs, Jews, Christians, you know, uh, alternative lifestyle live freely, have rights and can vote and, and can make, you know, significant, uh, amount of money compared to anywhere else in the, in the Arab region. And that's because they believed in those ideas and they followed through with them, right? And so that's my orientation in terms of why I'm in technology, why I'm involved in politics, is I want every human being to have access to that. If they don't choose, if they don't want it, whatever. If you want, if the Gaza and West Bank want to reject those ideas and live the way they do, that is their decision. But you can't launch rockets. You can't launch terrorist attacks. You can't like destroy life itself and creativity itself. If you want to be a toxic country, you can just go do that on your own time, right? Uh, and I think that's the posture that Americans need to have is, uh, it, is that it's, it's so, let me think of it this way. It's like, we're almost shy way of saying America's policeman or sorry, world's policeman. And I, I kind of, I, I just kind of like that word because police are not there all the time. Right. But we should clearly run 
all of the, you know, the trading routes, we should run treasury. We should run swift. We should, we, we should run these things because we actually are a good benevolent dictator, right? Because who else is going to run it? You can't just exist in this void of UN world government nonsense. The only reason why the UN exists is because America says it exists and we say it's important. That's it. No other reason, no other explanation. We say it's important, therefore it's important. We say Israel's important, therefore Israel's important. That is good. We that is a good action and a good act of our country and a good act of our values. Uh, and and so when it comes to these future technologies, we need to have the same approach, which is like these are good things. And we believe in the future prosperity that this can create. If you don't want to do that, if you want to be China, if you want to use AI against your citizens, whatever, that's your decision. But you're not gonna spread that to Korea, you're not gonna spread that to Japan, you're not gonna put this in Singapore. Philippines, wherever, or in Africa, like they don't want your crap. They don't like your bribes. They don't like your, you know, your failed infrastructure projects or your airports that don't work. Like they don't want that. Don't pressure them to do that. Right. That, that's how we can be a world's placement. It doesn't mean we launch missiles into freaking Shanghai. Right. But it clearly means that this is how the world works. You can participate or you don't. If you don't, you can, you know, hurt your own people, but don't hurt the rest of the world. Give me the ultra bull case. AI. EAC, uh, you know, technologists take over the world, the utopia gets built. Um, just, yeah. just like everything works. What does that world look like? Uh, I think there'd be a lot more people. Uh, I'm on the Elon train, more people, love people. I don't know how you fly over America and be like, there's too many people. Like, it's like people are, people are great. Uh, and uh, more, more people, uh, it, it, technology creates human flourishing. And to use a, a trite phrase on the center right. Um, I think it would be that um, there would probably actually be more onshoring. Uh, I do think the LLMs uh, kind of reimagine the way we think about like low wage work. Um, I I think that it would it enables other sort of more technical jobs that would be, uh, you know, on the lower end side that could like move people up. So rather than working at fast food, they're working at a data center that's like working on you know technical LLM machines still working with their hands. Uh, I actually think that the, the best case is more movement of manufacturing back to America uh, because we're re, we, we are understanding the importance of infrastructure and the importance of doing things ourselves. And one of the downsides, they're, they're, it's so interesting, like Sowell's, you know, Sowell's very famous for right, writing about secondary effects, right? That's like his big MO, right? He does about race, he does about welfare, right? Uh, voting rights, everything, right? He's, his books are always great about that. The secondary effects, right, of China lying about COVID is been that like people are like, wow, it's actually not the cheapest place to produce stuff anymore in China. It's actually Mexico, right? Almost almost all the goods. All right, it's better to do Mexico. Oh, they're actually like hostile. Oh, they're actually like spying on us. Oh, they're actually taking our it actually opened up all of this stuff, right? We're we're like before we're like, you know, libertarian, neoliberal, oh, just trade and everything will work out, right? Like it's as if like you can bribe a bully on the playground with candy every month and like that'll make him like not beat you up, right? So so we, we, we have a, the secondary effect of like what China did was that it reopened everybody to the fact of like, we actually should not rely on one country to do everything. And it's not the best country at, at many of those things. And so the China plus strategy on supply chain is like a permanent feature of like every major multinational now. So that's a down like China lost there. Um, another secondary effect, right, is that all of the blue cities that host all these tech companies are doing terribly, right? They supported the lockdowns and they continued it. They continued the mandates, vaccine, the mask, whatever. And it just destroyed their economy, right? It destroyed, no one wanted to live there. They just uh, like moved to Florida or Texas or Arizona or Colorado, right? And, and so like the, the secondary order effects is like where, where I think the, 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 the maximum upside is where we can actually see. It's like, yeah, LLMs, 
great, going to transform products. I think most LLMs are going to be features. So uh, like as in when you go to Charles Schwab, they have their own LLM, but it's not going to be like an LLM company, right? I think there's going to be very limited number of those people, like maybe OpenAI, right? Uh, from a consumer perspective, but the number of winners are going to be very, very small. Most of the winners are going to be integrations into other products. Uh, and, and because the value of that LLM is like the UX and the data. And, and that's something that a company can do themselves and probably will do themselves. Like you think Schwab is just going to give over all of its data to open AI to run it? No, of course not. Right. Like they, they run their whole freaking colos. Like they run all their own infrastructure. And Goldman Sachs is going to do that or American Airlines or United. No, they will run their all, they're all on colo. Right. So they have their own infrastructure. So they're just going to build their own, own LLMs. So the open source world is going to win. Uh, it just, it's going to move way too fast. All the proprietary model stuff is going to go, I think, south. Like it, it, there, there'll be a couple big winners just as brand names that you just use. But the, the, the ability to like not have ownership over your LLM, I think it creates too much, uh, secondary order risk, uh, as in responsibility. Like, you know, imagine there's an LLM for Donald Trump, right? Uh, which would be freaking hilarious. But like, let's say it says something that it doesn't believe, right? Like a Trump doesn't actually believe, but that's run by a third party. So, but who is going to be held accountable to the public eye? It'd be actually the whoever's running the Trump LLM at the, at the organization, not the third party. So that like, you know, for those scenarios where it would hallucinate or fail, if they don't own that infrastructure, that data, they don't, they, they can't just throw it to a third party. They're going to want to own it themselves, right? So they can want change the weighting and they can change the, the areas that are like these sort of like, you know, I would say edge cases, but like hallucinations. Um, and they can have actually ownership over that. So they can like say like, oh, you know, you did that wrong. Go fix it. Right. Versus throwing it to a third party. So I think that, that the most of the LOMs that are going to see that are going to dominate the market are going to exist in that zone where it has to have like 95% up accuracy. And I just can't see if you look at other things that enterprises have done where it is that for like uptime, right. Say for hosting. They generally build their own stuff, right? They, 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 they don't want to outsource that to a third party that they can't control. Uh, and so that's where I think LLMs mostly going to be feature. So then the secondary effects of that are going to be jobs, like just, just different ways of working with LLMs, different types of people who manage LLMs, uh, the infrastructure behind it, uh, new ways of like doing uh, customer service, uh, is going to open up another, like, so I, I see most positive impacts, uh, on jobs and wage growth. I uh, do not see much negative impacts. Uh, and again, the more people that we can move up the chain to where they can, you know, we can create a good lifestyle for people who, you know, don't go to college and who have, uh, want to work with their hands. Uh, I, I think that's where we have seen a lot of the failed American dream is that we, as, as I know, like, you know, you've talked about, it's like telling people to go through a system of indoctrination to get a degree has obviously not worked. So we need to provide other means and Silicon Valley can actually provide those means. Uh, if we allow it to flourish and go forward, uh, it, it, I, I have no idea why people think as the, as the Biden EO about AI is going to replace manufacturing jobs. I have, it's literally bizarre. Like it, it, it's, it's just, I don't even understand. It, it, it's, if they're going to make a machine to have LLM in it to do something, you need a person to push the thing to make the thing to get it and to move it, right? It's manufacturing, it's a physical good, right? So it's going to have more capability for more people to go do that job because it'd be easier for them to do, right? But it's, it's just a, uh, a total like politics is, and it's on both sides, not just this is Biden is current president. So, I mean, I think if there was a Republican, especially a mainstream established Republican, it would have been a very similar EO. Um, they just don't understand like 
how wealth gets created, how value gets created in a company, and the innate importance of humans in that value creation process. Instead, and if you look at how they actually legislate, they don't really care about people. They don't really understand them. They live in this like aloof world where they think that everyone cares about Zelensky and the freedom movement in Ukraine. Nobody does, right? Nobody, right? And and uh, okay, man, I can't wait till I can't wait till we see the grifts and the graph that like has been done on the Ukraine war. It, and the people were like, oh my God, how'd that happen? Look, literally what we did. He's a freaking corrupt person that has banned freedom in this country. It's like a Putin versus Putin, right? So what, what are you, he didn't invade Poland or freaking Finland. He invaded another autocracy. So of course, there's going to be massive grips. Like all of a sudden, these weapons end up in Iran. I wonder how that happens, right? Uh, it, it's it, Politicians just, as it comes to AI, it's a root relation to other things. They just live in this alternative reality. Where, where they, they, they do not have attachment to people. Uh, and th- that's a whole like other side of conversation. But like, yeah, I think the whole legislative branch and all this stuff needs to be reformed to where it actually represents things that people want and they feel like they have actual voice in the system, not this, because the current situation you have is like massively unstable. It's, it, it's a, it's, it's scary, but I mean, we'll work it out. America has worked it out several times before, but it, it, it the, the, the level of insurgency of anti-West ideas in our country is, is immensely concerning. Uh, and we just sort of continue to play games with Ukraine war. Oh, like send missiles over there. Like and versus the stuff in front of us now, we just sort of push on the rug and be like, no, it's just, yeah, we just ignore it. They're just, you know, kids who are playing along with uh, like a narrative. Like, no, this is like ideological self-destructive behavior that if you read, you know, uh, any biography about Russia, it became massively uncontrolled and Russia became communist because 7,000, it was just 7,000 people that are part of the Bolshevik party took over an interim government that was chaotic and then they became communist. Like it doesn't take many people to destroy something. Uh, and, and we just sort of, you know, Oh, who cares? Right. It's just kids playing right No, This is like a very serious thing in our country. Has America gone too far? Can it be saved? Can we r- roll it oh, back yeah. and I, I love a little better? Yeah. Go build a better future. Oh, I, I, I love it. I mean, if Trump can become president, dude, like, you know, yes. Like the country still has lots of energy in, in it. Uh, and besides, like, what else do we have, right? It, it, in Silicon Valley, there was a, you know, it used to be a joke, right? That like, oh, if America goes south, we'll they go to Nor- or, uh, New Zealand, right? Well, look what happened there, right? <laughs> so like, like, New Zealand was, was a freaking hermit kingdom for three years, right? Do you really want to move there? Those freaking people are crazy, right? So, uh, there, there's no, there's nothing left. There, there's no parachute. There's no exit option. Like the, the best would be Israel, right? Uh, but Israel was bad on COVID. But the best now is they'd be Israel, um, and because they're they're going to fight to win. Like they 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 will the, the desire to be alive and to have humans that live in a successful, safe society in Israel is a shared belief, regardless of whatever party you vote for, and and it's immensely beautiful and admirable. Uh, and and you remember like that that movie World War Z with like Brad Pitt and they you know they become a zombie in like ten seconds right so in that movie there's like two countries that survive America's freaking toast right so of course it would be right except like Texas I think in the movie it just makes sense so um and so the other one the two ones that remain are North Korea and in Israel right and North Korea because they pull out everyone's teeth and they shut down all the borders right and and so they survive but no one has teeth. And in Israel, right, they survive because they build a massive wall to protect all their cities, right? And, and they, what are they doing in the movie? They're letting people in. That was 
so true about Israel. Like that, that, like, and I've been there and I know many uh, Israeli politicians. I know like former ambassadors of Israel. I love Israel. Um, and they're letting in all types of people like Palestinians, Muslims, right in the movie. And, and, and Israel is protecting them, right? Because as they said in the movie, that like, every additional one of us is less of them. That is, that was just such a great image of Israel, right? Uh, and I, I wish that Americans would see that like, that is who we used to be. That like, we used to love immigration generally. We had moments where we didn't. And those, frankly, those were kind of justified. Like we were letting in way too many people, like during, you know, the sort of five points, New York City, gang riots and things like that. They weren't, as, we were not assimilating properly. Back then, it'd be funny if, if, if you take someone from, you know, uh, a New York gang in like the 19, whatever, eight, late uh, 1880s or 1910s, and you bring them to racial politics today, they'll be like, what do you mean? Like, I'm Irish. Like, he's German. We're not the same thing. And then today we're like, no, you're all white. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, that doesn't even make sense to me. Right. So it's just funny how historically how things evolve in terms of narrative. You look at uh, culturally speaking, does, doesn't, like, you go to Europe now, you say, like, oh, you know, Germans and Italians are, are all white. They'd be like, I don't, what do you mean? Like, we're completely different people. Right. So, uh, blood and soil matters more than, than, than us here. Uh, but like, uh, it, the orientation of like how Israel views life is what we used to believe. And, and that if you believed in our values, uh, and you, and you wanted to come here to participate in the, 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 the largest, most successful multicultural nation in the history of human civilization, then you should do it. Uh, nobody's complaining about Nigerians coming here, right? Like it, it, it's because they're immensely successful. Like, and, and, and that's what we want. We want people like that who want to participate in the experiment. Um, and it's a beautiful experiment. It's, it's, it's redemptive having a nation where race is secondary. Right to what you bring to the table, which has always been the goal of our society, even from the beginning. Like uh, the 1619 project is a lie; it's not true, historically not true. No historian ever did believes it. Even liberal historians who hate America say it's fictitious. None of it's true. Right? Um, it's a fanciful story about about the past. The orientation of our country has always been that that's the goal. Right? Is that you? What you bring, character, values, hard work, uh, your faith, your innate value as a human is how we build our society, not based on land, not based on race, not based on, you know, your religion or whatever sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, creed that has caused wars in other countries that you can come here and you can be, and you can be free. Uh, and, and that's what we should continue to press into. Uh, the, the election, I think of Trump was, was less so a statement, I think about him particularly, and more of a statement that Americans still believe that America can be great. That's actually what it was. It was not him. It was not his family or his character or his, he was, he, he is funny, but like his being funny, it was that he said over and over again that America should be great, should be powerful and should win. And that's what Americans should continue to be. I, uh, and that's still there. It is still there. And someone is going to leverage that in this upcoming election. Uh, and I think that's also what motivates our tech industry is that, that, that Andreessen Horowitz founders fund. Lux Capital, right? Like the the there's still this orientation in Silicon Valley for I say I would say great like Elon. Elon's I think my favorite entrepreneur. Like that America is the hope is the hope for the world that it, that the world can be different and history can be different. Uh, it doesn't mean we're perfect. Obviously, we have lots of examples of our country of not being perfect, but we are the country that gets past that, reconciles, and moves forward. Right? We are not the country that that like like basically gazes at our sins and and self implodes 
like every other country in the history of the world where we bring up things of the past constantly and not try to move forward in the posture of forgiveness and grace. Uh, and, and so that is the forgiveness and grace part is probably where I'm most concerned about is America lost, but I, I still think we're very much on the side of winning and being number one. When I think of the future, I think about technologists solving problems. I think of young mm-hmm. people becoming ambitious and going for it, trying to accomplish as much as possible. I think about Americans being proud of building things here in America, solving problems here in America, creating a better life here in America. How do we accomplish that from the earliest stages of someone's life? Right. You know, it's it some countries yeah. are very good at driving patriotism and nationalism and and these things. Yeah. Other countries we're good at it and getting worse and some just have never been yeah. good at it. And so how do you think about what yeah. is the right degree of, you know, in America, when I went to school, we stood up and said the pledge of allegiance. I actually don't know if kids do that anymore yeah. or not. Right. But like, like, Oh what, yeah. I don't know if they do is, either. Yeah. Like, like what, what does that look like in terms of we want to build a stronger country? And so what should we be doing with young people? Probably civil service is a requirement. Um, I think that's a good solution. Uh, Western save is a requirement course. Uh, I think the whole uh, grant system for higher ed needs to go away. Uh, I think higher ed needs to live under its own laurels and no longer operate on subsidies based on the federal government. Um, I think that we should return back to um, uh, some form of uh, like how we view immigration as a combination of like family and merit base, uh, some combination of both. Because I, I see merits for, to be frank, I see for both. I see it, it's very reasonable. To if you get in to bring your family, I think that that's very reasonable, uh, and I also think it should be based on merit. Um, but it as well, so some blend of that. Um, and but, but a lot of it is just is history. It's like appreciating where you are in this in the strand of American life, and the most uh, you know, like to, to use a, a biblical phrase, like the the people that uh, you know plants that die in the sun or get washed away in the river and are deeply rooted. Like, so the first is from James and Matthew, the second one's from Proverbs, are people who don't understand where they come from and don't understand what the past is. And if you read the past, if you read deeply into, like my favorite founding father is TJ. I call him TJ because I love, I love Thomas Jefferson. Um, you, you read him and you see a man that is not only brilliant, just like, ah, oh, she's so brilliant, but a man that struggles with the question of like, Obviously, slavery. Like he both called slavery and he owned slaves. He he called slavery the original sin of America. He also had slaves. He also the first bill he ever endorsed in the House of Burgesses in the Virginia when he was a delegate was the abolition or the base of the possibility of of slave to be free, which was banned in Virginia. Right. He also included in the Constitution the banning of slave trade in the last paragraph. So he's a complex person, right? And, and I think that's where history has gone from objective analysis of like people just are complex and they suck, right? Most of the time. And they do great things still, right? And, and, and that we have to see and be empathetic. So like people were really different when the country was founded as they were different in the 1950s and 1970s and even 20 years ago. And we have to understand the cultural context that they were in, but not that the relativistic, like how that's relative is the actual truth, right? It's only meant to design to create empathy. And I think that our educational system has become completely obsessed 
with the relativistic uh, narratives within each in, in each like epoch of of our country, and became that became the truth. No, like like objective actions that happen and motivations are like important, uh, but you have to like it's more of a posture of understanding than it is to judge. And as C.S. Lewis has a phrase, Americans have become increasingly detached, which is also becoming decreasingly patriotic because of chronological snobbery. They, they are more obsessed with their narcissistic view about their own morality and ethics of the day, uh, uh, which is why like Ryan Long, I encourage everyone to watch him. He has great videos about this, right? Making fun of Americans and our own sort of, you know, we like to smell our own farts to use a, a South Park phrase uh, versus historically, like you would be very different. Right. And, 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 and that's where we need to appreciate where we are in that lineage and that timeline, because then we can come back and say, oh, yeah, this is why America is great, because we have gotten past bad things, not just bad things happen. Of course, every country has had bad things. Right. Every country like, you know, slavery, as an example, going back to Thomas Jefferson thing, we are the only country that fought a civil war over it. Right. And and continue to push against the, the fact that that was in our country and that was embarrassing to us. Like the founding fathers is considered embarrassing. Um, that, and that we survived that, we moved on, right? And we move forward in life, right? Obviously there's still lineages of, of debt from that, but we still move forward. That destroyed other countries, right? And that, that's where you, you focus on the things that are different, not the things that are universal. Uh, and as, as, as like Dennis Prager always says stuff like that too, that like, it's, it's not that we had slavery, it's that we fought to end it, right? Um, and, and, the, and so I seen to go back to Israel, cause when I, when I was on, um, uh, I was looking at the Mount of Olives and I was like around the, the temple Mount and above the market, you see Israel, the IDF is teaching all the recruits about what happened to win, uh, Jerusalem back. And they have maps and stuff and they're pointing out, they're pointing in, there's people, they're teachers, right? And they're all in military uniforms. And, and what they're, what, what Israel is amazing at is because it's actually a life or death question. You know, they have, I think it's 7 million people, right? Live there and surrounded by, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of, of Arabs and Muslims and that every person has to be on the same page, right? Like every person has to be willing to take up their arms and fight because it's literally death for us, right? If, if it doesn't, if we don't are successful in this. So they're, I think, very good at, at creating alignment in the country about like, you know, we, they have their own mess, obviously with Netanyahu and all the like political crap that's going on. But when they get attacked, they're like, no, 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 no. We have interfamily issues, but nobody messes with our country. Right. And, and, and that's where Americans need to return back to. And I think it's like a lot of it's like education and teaching people that the lineage and the beauty of the American experiment is that it worked. And it was, it's in a lot of it was blessings from the Lord and luck and just bright people, right time. Uh, but we've also have a system of government that has enabled us to work through things that have killed and destroyed an entire society. Uh, and that's what I focus on. I don't focus on that we had, you know, all the embarrassing things we've had in our country. We focus on the winds, uh, because those winds are so rare in our, in global human civilization that they're underappreciated because we focus on things that were mistakes. My last question you raised from Founders Fund and a few other investors. Um, has this all now just come down to like there's based investors and everyone else? How do you think about kind of the the venture? Community? Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's as I was saying in the first thing, it's like it's split. Where like it's not even really, uh, it's not even around policy ideas. It's like you said, it's like based. It's like people who respect other people for making a stand. Like um, 
there's a guy Sequoia that's become really famous on Twitter. He's a Jew and he's been tweeting a lot about Israel. I forgot his name. Um, uh, but he's been there. Yeah. Yeah. So like, he, I mean, I'm sure he's a dem, but like, and I'm not a dem, but like what he's doing is right. Like he's, he's being, he's saying what he thinks and he's being based. And I'm like, good for you. Right. And, and that group of people, right. Is only growing because the, the, the based VC community, the red pill VC community, right. Are people that like, are not really oriented around taxes or even like candidates. It's just this belief that like, I should be able to say what I want and not be called all these names, especially when you logically think about what I'm saying. And it does not even come to equate to what that, that the guy has been, uh, the guy from school has been insulted by. And, um, but like you, 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 what makes Silicon Valley amazing is the fact of like that used to be what made it great was you challenge the status quo, right? You would say going to Stanford was a useless waste of time. Like, like that used to be the things that we would say. And the, the regulatory capture, I think of like Web 2.0, which got way too intermingled with Obama, kind of like sucked in all those people, right? Where they got, you know, interested in power, right? But you see that like the natural tendency of what I call Web 1.0, PayPal mafia, Andreessen Horowitz, Peter Thiel, right? Um, type of, type of folks. Like that's still there. That's sort of like rebellious, the, the challenging, the being heterodox, right? And even as someone who was sucked in to that, you know, regulatory capture, big government Obama, I'm talking about Zuck, is like moved back, right? Like you see Zuck in like, obviously Zuck is red pill, right? He does CrossFit, like he's doing, you know, martial arts, his statements about free speech, right? Like he obviously saw like, okay, these people are like not my my type, right? Originally, they were kind of playing ball, like with the government. And then they're like, holy crap, okay, no, no, this is actually not, this is not a good idea, right? And and I think that community is going to continue the innovation curve, right? And the crypto people, Bitcoin, uh, a lot of LLM people, uh, defense tech, um, like we're kind of part of the defense tech world, uh, really hard problems, uh, sort of entrepreneurs are going to be continuing being the base people who are challenging and uh, the status quo to like create innovation to create human flourishing and wealth. Uh, there's a large segment of the tech world that are, you know, what I would say, uh, you know, fair weather sort of tech people who are only interested in like flipping companies, not creating long-term value for, for our society or for the world and are just in it because it's a label. And I think that world is going to kind of like continue to be around, but kind of disappear because they're not really creating anything of value. They're just, they're just playing different narratives. Um, but that core contingent of like hardcore, I call web 1.0, like the heart of that, which is the, you know, the Western sort of cowboy, California, you know, we can build our own wealth and our own companies and our own, you know, our own world that is still going to drive, I think the majority of innovation. And those investors and those entrepreneurs are just going to continue to like isolate and get around each other. Cause who wants a board member on your company? That's like, you know, supporting what, you know, uh, or, you know, like, uh, uh, people who are terrorists, like, you know, and not just like, but like openly and like promoting it. Right. Like, and so uh, entrepreneurs now are like kind of returning back to like, okay, we need to get, we need to get focused. This stuff is crazy. It was fun for a little bit, but I see that these people are actually not on our side. And, or, you know, it's not even political. It's just like, you know, like you said, it's like, it's, uh, it's like base, non-base sort of frameworks. Where can we send people to find more about Hydra or find you on the internet, wherever you're hiding? Uh, yeah, it's on Twitter, uh, A-G-I-N-N-T, and then hydrahost.com. Uh, and I write on Substack. I write mostly about masculinity and religion on Substack. 
and then medium are about business stuff. Uh, but yeah, like on Twitter, uh, you'll kind of see me, uh, randomly throwing up, uh, you know, different things I find kind of funny on the internet. Um, and, but yeah, hydros.com, uh, is our, is our GPU infrastructure company. Uh, and hopefully, you know, giving the world access to as many GPUs as possible. So Aaron, I learned so much every single time that we've talked. Um, I appreciate that you just say what you think, which I think is a uh, a core skill that we need more people to do in the world. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, and we'll definitely do it again in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man.